This is CNN Tonight. I'm Jim Shudo, live from Lviv, along with Laura Coates in the U.S. So when you liberate a war-torn city, you are freeing it from its oppressors. That is not what Vladimir Putin has done to the southeastern city of Mariupol, as he twistedly, outrageously, is claiming tonight. Not only are his forces still surrounding, entrapping hundreds of Ukrainian civilians and soldiers who've been sheltering in a steel plant, he has now ordered his forces to blockade the area so tight so as not to let even a fly get through. Pay attention to the way he uses that word fly. He's done it before, dismissing his opponents as insects to be swatted away or worse. Fact is, Russian forces are slaughtering people, not liberating them. There is brand new evidence tonight of more potential Russian war crimes. New satellite images from just outside Mariupol in a village about 12 miles away called Manush. They appear to show more than 200 new graves, rows and rows, in fact, of mass graves. One Ukrainian official in Mariupol says that Russians are driving truckloads, truckloads of corpses to the site and dumping them. This official calls this, quote, direct evidence of war crimes as well as attempts to cover them up. President Zelensky says tonight that Mariupol continues to resist Russia despite everything the occupiers say. And President Biden said today that there is, quote, no evidence yet Mariupol has completely fallen, perhaps referencing the few remaining holdouts in that steel plant. As Biden announced $800 million more in weapons for Ukraine, including dozens of howitzers, nearly 150,000 rounds of ammunition, and more tactical drones. And he also directed this vow at Putin. He will never succeed in dominating and occupying all of Ukraine. He will not, that will not happen. You know, Jim, I know you're also going to tell us about this stunning and disturbing new audio of what appears to be Russian soldiers discussing orders to kill Ukrainian POWs. And we're going to come back to that in a second. It's extraordinarily disturbing. And also this hour, Jim, the uproar in Florida after Republican lawmakers voted to redraw a congressional map that eliminates two majority black voting districts. And they also have voted to revoke Disney's special status, the tax privileges that were there. And we we're talking about it last night, which is a move that critics are calling retaliation and what could end up hurting Florida's taxpayers in the end. And the question is, will the Biden administration keep a Trump-era policy that allows border officials to turn back migrants doing and during a public health crisis? If it does let what's called Title 42 expire next month, could it further aggravate the crisis at our southern border? We'll dig into all of that. But I want to go back to Ukraine and, and to Jim, because... Jim, from here in the States, I look at this map of Mariupol, and it's absolutely devastating to see this chunk of the city that's surrounded by the Russian forces, as you described. But for many people looking at this, they're wondering about this discrepancy, the idea of the back and forth over whether Mariupol as a city yeah. has technically fallen. What's behind this? What is the significance of this discord, it seems? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. It, it may be sort of a, a willful defiance, uh, wanting to highlight that Ukrainian forces, and this is true, have not given up uh, in Mariupol and in other places, even when they've faced uh, the worst of odds. But the fact is, Russians do control the vast majority of the city. Crucially, they control 
the key crossroads through the city, and that's one of the reasons they wanted it so badly, and they control most of the coastline, which is another reason they want it. And, and really, the defenders are confined in that steel plant we're looking at right there. So uh, that, that may be a holdout. It, it may be admirable to watch, but, but militarily, uh, it, the, the military officials I speak to now describe the situation there as dire for them. And the sad fact may be that for all intents and purposes, uh, this is now Russian territory. Now, the rally, of course, there's the symbolism of resistance and defiance and not wanting to concede that mm -hmm. there has been anything taken. And then, as you point out, the idea of the realities that are on the ground doesn't obviously mean that Ukraine has fallen. But the significance of Mariupol in particular is one that I'm sure will be touted by Putin and conversations around that that would support the yeah. propaganda. But also the Russians surrounded Mariupol back on March 1st, and, and they've been pounding it ever since, Jim. And as we once again see these images of, of the mass graves, and we see the tragedy, we see the terror, we see the conversations and see the images around war crime allegations, I, I'm trying to understand from the United States and the audience's perspective and humanity, how do those of us here at home wrap our minds around the unrelenting horrors of this war. We can't normalize it. We can't look at these issues and say no. that happened and it continues to happen and move right on. I want to appeal to folks at home to keep paying attention because we're bearing witness here, not just the reporters on the ground here, the Ukrainian people and others observing this, but, but everyone who's watching these stories, we're bearing witness to crimes taking place, and they're taking place every day. And, and, and those are not just claims, right? Because we have visual evidence of this. We have eyewitness accounts of this that fit a pattern of, of deliberate Russian targeting of civilians. And I just want to tell one story today that, that helps highlight it. And you and I were discussing this earlier. Uh, a few weeks ago, when I was here for the first time with my team, we met a, a woman uh, and her three children that had fled. They were fleeing the country, as many millions have done. They were from a place called Bucha. Now, at the time, we knew that Bucha had seen horrible fighting, but we did not know what Bucha would become, right, the scene of some of the worst crimes of this war. And here was a family that just made it out with their lives. And I connected with them today. They're now in Spain, thankfully, uh, safely. And they told me that they've been reaching out to friends and family in Bucha, and they're hearing just the worst of stories. They heard that two of their children's teachers, including a kindergarten teacher, were among those killed there. They can't, she can't tell her six-year-old son that. Who would? Uh, that's the reality. Uh, and I think we have to remember that each grave that we see, uh, each account uh, of civilians killed here has a face and a name like that. And every day we hear more very credible accounts of just that kind uh, of thing. And, and I, th I think we all have something of a duty to simply keep paying attention. So, so well said and just heart-wrenching to think about. I mean, if we contextualize it for so many people prior to the invasion, I remember last year from 2020 and beyond, frankly, when parents were grappling with how to talk to their kids about the possibility of COVID claiming somebody's life, a teacher's life, yeah. and thinking about the ideas of relative safety and the bygone era of what felt like normal. And you're seeing for very different reasons at very different levels the gut-wrenching choices that parents like you and I have to make and parents in Ukraine and beyond about how to balance that test of the reality and trying to shield them and protect them. And we're seeing, and, I, and this is yeah. why we have to keep on these stories and talk about it, because the tactics we're mm -hmm. seeing at a, are at a level 
even beyond the normalcy of terror in a war. I mean, what do we know about reports that Russians are ordering that even prisoners be killed? Yeah. This is yet one more story uh, of the evidence of war crimes here. And there's evidence, right? So, so in this case, it's intercepted communications. And there have been numerous ones of these. And, and the reason that these are credible is that we know that the Russian forces are using unsecure communications. They're using regular cell phone lines that Ukrainian intelligence services can intercept. I know that U.S. intelligence has intercepted many conversations. This particular one shows Russian soldiers discussing their orders. Think of this. Following orders. Their orders to kill POWs. Have a listen. Including relatives, the voices of soldiers discussing their orders to kill. I want to bring in now a member of the Ukrainian parliament, Kira Rudik. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I know you, like many people in Ukraine, following the situation in Mariupol very closely. Putin used the term liberated today. He says he liberated Mariupol. How do you respond to that? You know, the atrocities that we have seen in Mariupol and we have heard from the people who were able to escape, they can only be compared to something that Russians witnessed 80 years ago as a siege of St. Petersburg when people were dying of hunger on the streets, when people were eating dogs and birds, something like pigeons or something, and and now they are repeating it on my land to my people. And this is uh, absolutely terrifying. Yesterday we had a chance, we thought we had a chance to get people out with a humanitarian convoy. It was 25th attempt to get people out in a peaceful way with the agreement with Russians. We had at least five buses of women and children ready to go, and we were not able to take them out because Russians didn't didn't stop firing. We, We were not able to get a ceasefire from them, though beforehand they promised to do that. So could you even imagine what these women and children felt sitting there in the buses for... Uh, I don't know, like a couple of hours waiting if their life will be spared or not. And they were not. They had to return back. Though there was like a small chance of having the future for the children, having the life. And you know, when, uh, when we in parliament heard that the humanitarian convoy failed once again, we were crying, many of us, because there is There is no explanation. There is no explanation to the cruelty. There is no explanation to the desire to kill them just to make sure that they wouldn't exist. We are talking about civilian people in the city in 21st century in the middle of Europe. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because this is appears to be part of the Russian strategy. Russia is suffering its own losses of soldiers, but its leaders don't seem to care killing civilians with impunity. Ukrainian leaders, they they do care about losing soldiers. They care about losing their people and their cities. How does Ukraine keep going, keep fighting an enemy 
that plays by no rules and apparently has an endless tolerance for, for its own losses. How, how do you fight that war? Day by day, making sure that we don't give up every single inch of Ukrainian soil. You know that it's not just soldiers that they are fighting. It's every single Ukrainian man and woman are fighting. I'm sure that being here, you heard the stories about Ukrainian babushkas who uh, who were feeding Russian soldiers with uh, the poisoned cakes or something. I'm sure you heard about uh, the resistance of teenagers who are fighting them with Molotov cocktails. So it's every single person who is fighting. And we know that there would be no additional motherland for us. We know that there is uh, no other place for us to be. So we have to protect uh, what's here, our land, our country. And uh, we are totally aware of, about what's facing us if we fail. I have been to Bucha, one of the first people. I know what they will do to us. And I don't want this to happen mm -hmm. to myself and to any of, of the people that I love. That's why we will be fighting. We will be fighting for every single yeah. inch. We'll be fighting till the end. Let me ask you this. The world is helping. It's calling out this behavior. It's sending weapons. It's penalizing Russia economically. However, none of that is stopping the crimes we're witnessing on the ground here. Do you have faith in the international community's ability, willingness to stop this as it's happening? Yes, I do. I do have this faith, I do have this hope. Right now, uh, it's many, many things are done halfway. Like the sanctions are done halfway when on the one hand, uh, the countries are condemning Russia and on the other hand, keep paying them uh, straight cash, like a billion dollars a day from European countries for Russian gas and oil. Uh, right now, countries are supporting Ukraine, but we are still in progress of getting heavy weaponry that we do need. And it's already almost 60 days of war. So I understand that it takes time for the world to adapt to the truth that we in Ukraine have known for eight years. You cannot trust Russia. Yeah. They would pull you and they would be killing you at every step of the way. This is why we are explaining to the world that what's happening in Ukraine is called genocide. This is why we are explaining to the world that you cannot get into any peaceful agreement with Russia because in comparison, it is like going into peaceful agreement with Hitler and saying, oh, we will talk to him and probably he will spare some lives of the Jews. We know that it's all useless, yeah. but we understand that it will take time for the world to understand this and to believe it. Unfortunately, my people are paying for this time with their own lives, but I do know that people will come around. I truly believe in that. Yeah. And I, every single day I'm making sure that we are closer to the point yeah. that there will be absolutely second by decisions that will be made. Well, I hope you're right. Kira Rudik, member of Ukrainian parliament, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, and glory to Ukraine. Slava Ukraine, as they say. Well, we turn to survivors of the horrors in Borodyanka just ahead, how one family managed to stay alive for more than a month on nothing but grains, all of that in an underground bunker. 
and the sounds of war that will haunt them forever. Back now from Lviv, like so many stories of this war, it sounds like something out of World War II. Children forced to hunker underground as bombs go off above them, surviving for weeks on nothing but grain. That is the tragic reality of the war here today, a war that the president of Estonia said today has elements of genocide. Our Ed Lavendara, he's in Kyiv. He spoke to Ukrainians suffering this reality. Ed, just an incredible story here of how one family managed to stay alive and all they had to do. Yeah, it really struck us as we've been driving around the areas north of Kyiv that were under Russian occupation for so long. You see children, teenagers witnessing the aftermath of this horror. It really got us to thinking what it must be like for them. Hidden behind a row of homes in the town of Borodyanka, Ukrainian police exhumed the bodies of nine civilians killed by Russian soldiers. They're documenting evidence of war crimes. This mother stands over her son's body left in a makeshift grave. On the other side of the graves, we notice Ivan Onufrienko staring quietly at the grave of another victim. One of your friends is buried here? Ivan says his friend was killed by Russian shrapnel as she tried to escape the city. The cross bearing Katya's name was made by his grandfather, who dug this shallow grave because they couldn't store the bodies at the hospital. I can't take this well when I see this. I cry, but I'm not showing this. I feel weak, weak because I cannot do anything. Ivan is 16 years old. In two months of war, he's witnessed the innocence of childhood die before his eyes. Watching Ivan makes you wonder how a teenage mind copes with the horror in front of him. His family says to understand, we must see what they experienced. Ivan's family never left this backyard shed for more than 30 days while Russian troops occupied this city. Ivan's grandfather and father showed us how they survived on nothing but homemade bread. So basically they would take the grain, the raw grain, and grind it down into flour or a version of flour, and then they would make their own bread in this oven. And that's what they lived on for more than a month. Five adults and four children hid in this underground bunker. This is where Ivan heard weeks of artillery blasts and cries for help, the sounds of war that will haunt survivors forever. I slept here, my sister and my mom slept here, and another family slept here too. We tried to curl up and sleep here together. Sometimes when things got really scary, our dads would come down and stay with us. Ivan's grandfather, Sergei, says Russian soldiers told him the family would be killed if they tried to escape. Police say more than 50 people were killed here, many of them shot as they tried to run away. The death toll is expected to climb. How frightening was this experience for you? Serhi is stoic as we talk about surviving the Russian siege, but there's one question that pierces his heart. Do you worry about 
your grandchildren witnessing this war. Не могу слов сказать таких. Понимаете? Маленькие, может, и забудут, а старшие будут помнить постоянно. Grandfather and father know their children will never be the same. Why do you feel it was important to be here at this moment? Чтобы люди это увидели. So people can see for themselves. The whole world should see how the Russian world comes and kills civilians for nothing. When you get older, what do you think you'll remember about this moment and this day? I'll remember everything. I'll remember every day, and I will tell my children and my grandchildren. I will remember this all my life. He's a teenager who refuses to look away from the raw reality of this war. And Jim, what Ivan and his family really struggle with most right now is trying to understand why they are some of the lucky ones that survived in that city. They were up close, face to face with Russian soldiers who at the time were killing other people in their city. How they were able to escape alive is something uh, that they don't have answers for and it's almost difficult to live with. And he still has the face of a child and all that he has witnessed already, like so many children in this country. Ed Lavendera, thank you for bringing us that story. Let's go back to Laura in Washington. What a story. It's incredible to think. And just this, the look in that grandfather's eyes, you know that he is yep. thinking about what his children, his grandchildren are thinking. And it's something that is just, it's heart-wrenching to see, knowing that there's no end in sight. Jim, thank you. I, I want to take it to... Mm -hmm what's happening here as well, because, you know, the, to, the controversy here at home over new laws that are being passed in Florida, those targeting Disney and Democrats, raising retaliation and also claims of discrimination. We're going to tackle that when we come back. Well, tonight, Florida's Republican governor is poised to sign new laws that mark, well, two key political wins for him, perhaps. That's thanks to the Florida legislature. GOP state lawmakers voted to strip Disney of its self-governing district after the company publicly opposed his new law, the one that critics refer to as the Don't Say Gay law. The Florida House also approved Santos' proposed redistricting map, even as several Democratic members staged a protest. CNN's Diane Gallagher is outside the state capitol in Tallahassee. Diane, take us through what happened today, play by play. Yeah, you know, Laura, the Disney bill is the one making all the splashy headlines right now, but Republicans who voted for it, even those who presented the bill, aren't exactly sure how or if it can actually be accomplished, leaving Democrats to worry that it may have been a distraction from the maps that were passed that will reduce minority representation. Not the happiest place on earth this week, as Florida Republicans vote to strip Disney of its special private government status. In what Democrats have dubbed the governor's retaliation session, the bill would eliminate Disney's special privileges, which allows the theme park to provide its own public services like police and fire units. Why are we putting our knee on the neck 
of the mouse. A bombshell add to the legislative session just days earlier by Governor Ron DeSantis. This state is governed by the interests of the people of the state of Florida. It is not based on the demands of California corporate executives. Stemming from a new Florida law that bans schools from discussing sexual orientation and gender identity with young children. Dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill by opponents, Disney called for it to be overturned and suspended political donations in Florida after DeSantis signed it into law last month. So Disney poked the bear and they got us looking at special districts. It's play or punish. If you're gonna play in the, uh, the hands of the governor or you're gonna be punished. Republicans struggled to answer questions about whether taxpayers would be stuck covering the services and more than $1 billion in debt carried by Disney's special district. The debt service alone would amount to $580 per person. Family of four just got hit with a $2,200 tax bill. Over the protest of black representatives, House Republicans gave final passage to a new congressional map. When the governor announced that he was expanding special session to include this attack on Disney, it was to distract and hide the ball in terms of what he's doing with redistricting. In an unprecedented move, DeSantis vetoed maps passed during the regular session by his own party and submitted his own version last week. You don't get to write the map and approve the map. It potentially gives Republicans as many as 20 of the state's 28 districts, while dismantling the 5th district held by Democratic Congressman Al Lawson, dividing Jacksonville, the city with the largest black population in the state, into two Republican-leaning districts, and shifting the Orlando-area 10th district, currently held by Congresswoman Val Demings, east towards whiter communities. Anytime someone comes up against the governor, he bullies them. That sounds like a dictator to me. The map was approved without changes and now heads to DeSantis's desk. And Governor DeSantis confirmed late this evening that he had received the bills. He has until May 6th to sign them. Now, look, voting rights groups have already indicated that they do plan to file legal challenges, Laura, against these maps. Of course, you know, I'm a former member of the voting rights section in the Civil Rights Division, and without Section 5 and without a lot of teeth behind the Voting Rights Act, of course, it's difficult to see how this can be undone. But this is part of what democracy really has to take a look at. The idea, as you mentioned, writing the maps, being able to sign them, and then talking about the will of the people. There's a lot that needs to be unpacked there. But the common thread, Diane, is that what he is pushing in his own congressional map and other aspects might very well be that he is continuing to seize on some of the culture war issues that many people have been focusing on in Florida. And you know what? It's really raising his political profile. And imagine perhaps the coup if one can take on the Voting Rights Act. How do you see this unfolding? Uh, so that is the concern from a lot of the Democrats here and a lot of voting rights activists here in Florida. What was specific about these maps is that uh, Governor DeSantis said that he was trying to go off of the U.S. Constitution and make them, quote, race neutral. Now, black Democrats said that race neutral was just another way of saying a white district. But they say that the Florida Constitution requires the preservation of minority districts. DeSantis has said he does not agree with that. And the belief is that the attempt 
of these maps is to challenge not just the Florida state constitution, but potentially get to the Supreme Court of the United States to challenge the Voting Rights Act itself, Laura. And a lot of that does fall into some of these headlines, these, as you mentioned, culture war touchstones that we have seen from the Florida governor over the past year or so. Now, I do want to point out that a lot of the bills that were signed into law have been stopped either all or in part uh, here in Florida by the courts. But He's still getting the headlines, and that is what people are seeing, talking about all that has been accomplished on those fronts. The expectation is these will end up in court. But here's the thing, and you know this, Laura, these are 10-year maps. And Mm -hmm. even if it does end up in court, the likelihood of it being stopped before the 2022 congressional elections, those midterms, is very slim. And so because they feel like they are running out of time here in Florida, the Democrats say they are afraid that regardless of what happens, that they may see a diminished minority representation in those all important 2022 midterms, even if they are successful in court. That's fascinating. And also thinking about the idea, as you mentioned, these were Republican drawn maps that the governor said no to. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, his approval ratings are up. I mean, it's up six points from August and potentially up eight points in the governor's race. He's now at 54%. That's higher, according to the CNN poll of polls, than even the president of the United States. Diane Gallagher, thank you. Also, another controversy tonight. Some Democrats, Democrats, are pleading with the White House to keep a border policy from the Trump era. What happens with migrants trying to reach the U.S. if Title 42's pandemic rule ends next month? And how does this Biden approach to immigration compare with, frankly, the handling of refugees from Ukraine and beyond? I'll discuss that with David Sanger next. Well, President Biden is getting major blowback from his own party over expectations that his administration will appeal Title 42. To remember, that's the Trump-era COVID policy that allows U.S. border officials to turn migrants along the southern border back to Mexico or their home countries. But when the president was asked about this today, he seemed to conflate Title 42 with the federal mask mandate battle. Watch. Are you considering delaying lifting Title 42? No, what I'm considering is continuing to hear from my, uh, my, uh, first of all, there's going to be an appeal by the Justice Department because as a matter of principle, we want to be able to be in a position where if in fact it is strongly concluded by the scientists that we need Title 42, that we'd be able to do that. But there has been no decision on extending Title 42. Now, to be fair, the president later clarified that then he was talking about the mask mandate, but more on why this conflation may have political ramifications a little bit later. As you know, a federal judge this week overturned the CDC COVID policy for airlines and other forms of mass transit. Well, my next guest says the administration's viewpoint on these two issues reveals a very key consistency. Well, an inconsistency at that. CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger joins me now. David, you know, the conflation really raises a larger issue because on the one hand, there's the idea of taking away Title 42, which essentially, you had to say, means there is no longer a public health emergency that merits that. On the other hand, you've got the idea of appealing a decision 
to roll back that mask mandate that's happening in public transportation. How do you reconcile the two? Can you? You really can't, Laura. Thanks for for having me on. So um, what we learned is that uh, the president, of course, had set a date a while ago, uh, May 23rd, to um, lift the Title 42 um, elements of this. Now, what that means is uh, this is a health mandate, as you indicated, not an immigration mandate. Mm-hmm. And so under Title 42, if you came over the land border from, uh, from Mexico uh, or from Canada, you uh, would not be allowed to go through the usual asylum process. You would be turned back right away. This is a technique that was adopted by the Trump administration at first rejected by the courts, you may recall, before COVID as just another way to try to limit immigration. And uh, then during COVID, it was allowed. And uh, so the big question was, what would President Biden do with it? He stuck with it for what will essentially be a year and a half, but was then going to to ditch it in, in May. Now there's some suggestion they may try to extend that uh, and keep keep Title 42 in place. And as you say, the crazy part about this is if the mask mandate is being lifted at that time, you're essentially saying that there that the pandemic is over as a health emergency for air travelers, but not for people coming over the border. Well, what's interesting, too, about this, David, and, and you point out this notion, um, and again, these are members of his own party who are talking about this very issue. It's not as if the announcement of Title 42 meant that no one tried to come to the border. So the lifting of Title 42, obviously, is going to uh, provide for an influx of migrants who are hoping to come to the United States of America. Is there a plan in place that you have seen sufficient such that the administration, and they really can't claim to be blindsided by the influx when it comes, and it most likely will come, is there a political consideration about how to deal with this? And, and the reason I'm so focused on this is, of course, we've got an inconsistency. On the one hand, we're all watching what's happening in Ukraine and an open arm policy as related to refugees, albeit for very different reasons. No one can, do- can doubt that. But yet in the U.S., we still have this tension about just how open our borders are in relation to those who are also seeking refuge in the United States. It's, it's exactly right. So on the first part of your question, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, who's the Secretary of Homeland Security, has said that they are preparing for what they know will be a big surge uh, in uh, as soon as the uh, Title 42 uh, provisions are lifted. I went back and looked today to see how much they were using Title 42. It turns out that in the along the southwest border, there were about 160,000 uh, encounters with people coming over the border last month, March. Uh, I'm sorry, two months ago. Um, so uh, in that time, uh, about half of those were sent back under Title 42. They were just immediately turned around. So you have to think that there will be at least 80,000 people who they could send back right away who will remain in the U.S. and add to that backlog of uh, asylum cases. And then, what I'm you hearing you out, say, well, what I'm hearing you say, David, obviously, is this is a problem that you've contemplated, an issue that must be resolved and anticipated. And the question will be politically, what the administration intends to do about it now that it's not just Republicans who are asking for resolution. David, we're out of time, but thank you so much. And we will all be right back.
In Russia, Putin's boldest critic, opposition leader Alexei Navalny, remains in jail after more than a year. The story of how he got there is the stuff of spy thrillers and is told in the new CNN film Navalny. Here is Alex Marquardt with a closer look. There is no greater antagonist or political threat in Russia to Vladimir Putin than Alexei Navalny. As a result, the 45-year-old opposition leader is now languishing in a Russian penal colony, serving a combined sentence of more than 11 years in prison. I understand how system works in Russia. I understand that, uh, that Putin hates me. Navalny's imprisonment is the culmination of more than a decade of activism, of being a thorn in Putin's side. He was a blogger and a lawyer who emerged in 2008, exposing corruption at some Russian state-owned companies. The Putin regime is built on corruption, and Putin himself is the most corrupt. In 2011, after allegations that parliamentary elections were rigged in favor of Putin's political party, Navalny rose to prominence as a leader in the large-scale protests. Over the years, he was repeatedly arrested evidence of a growing popularity that threatened the Russian establishment's grip on power. His shining rise, somewhat complicated in his early days with cooperation and marching alongside other anti-Putin forces, which included members of far-right nationalist groups. Navalny justifies it now by saying a broad coalition is needed to fight a totalitarian regime. In 2013, he ran for mayor of Moscow and lost to Putin's favored candidate. The same year, he was also convicted of embezzlement, a conviction which he called trumped up that would prevent him from running for president against Putin in 2018. Two years later, in August 2020, he boarded a flight from the central Russian city of Tomsk to Moscow. Soon, his cries were heard throughout the cabin. Navalny knew exactly what had happened. Uh, turned over to the flight attendant and said to him, I was poisoned, I'm going to die. He'd been poisoned with a chemical nerve agent called Novichok. He was flown to Germany for treatment. A joint investigation by CNN and the investigative group Bellingcat uncovered the team of agents from the FSB, the successor to the KGB, that had tracked and followed Navalny for years before the poisoning. Is it your contention that Vladimir Putin must have been aware of this? Of course, 100%. CNN's Clarissa Ward and her team confronted a member of the FSB's toxin team, Oleg Tayakin, at his apartment on the outskirts of Moscow. Oleg Borisovich, right? Clarissa Ward. I work with CNN. My name's Clarissa Ward. I work for CNN. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Can I ask you a couple of questions? At the Russia commander at Ravila Navalny, was it your team that poisoned Navalny, please? Five months after his poisoning, Navalny returned to Russia, knowing what awaited him. I will go back because I'm a Russian politician. I belong to this country. I would never give Putin such a gift. He was arrested on arrival. In prison, he started a hunger strike. He was initially sentenced to two and a half years for violating his probation. Then another nine were added for fraud and contempt of court charges which Putin critics say are clearly political. Alex Marquardt, CNN, Washington. You really do want to tune in to this film. Navalny, it premieres Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. It's a powerful story and an inspiring one. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And I want to reiterate, this comes full circle, Jim, that how important it is to keep telling the stories that we're hearing, not to let any of this be normalized or have people be 
dismissive just because of the idea of seeing it day in, day out. It's really tragic, but we have to keep covering it. And I want to thank you for the coverage that you're doing out there in particular and bringing these stories for everyone to hear and know that they're attached to human beings and lives. Thank you, Laura. I'm part of a big team here and we're doing our best to tell those stories. We'll keep telling those stories. I'm going to be here in Ukraine tomorrow for CNN Tonight, along with Laura, reporting from Washington. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.